Gracious Father, it is indeed such a wonderful comfort to know that you rule over your world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we come to these final two chapters of Daniel, that you would give us a deeper understanding of that and help us to truly trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Till death do us part, I'll be right where you are. When we finally get to the end of our lives, I'll leave just before you, so I won't have to cry. Before your last breath, I'll go up ahead. I'll be waiting for you, hold your place in the line, as we walk through the gates down the streets painted white. However long you live, I hope I exist one day less. Uh, these are the newly released lyrics by singer-songwriter Anson Sebra. And they're kind of hauntingly beautiful, aren't they? Uh, they talk about the days leading up to the death of a spouse and this guy's wish to live one day less. But as he talks about this, you can see that he has a confidence in the future of some sort, at least some sort of understanding of the life after death. Because he speaks, he says, I'll go up ahead. And as he contemplates the tragic death of his wife and his own death too, he's a guy who seems to have confidence that there is, in fact, life after death. But how does he know? Oh, I don't know anything about this guy. But maybe he's picked up a bit of the teaching of the Bible. Maybe a bit of Christianity somewhere has sunk into him. But something in his mind thinks that there's life after death. And I don't think he's alone in that. I think a lot of people think that there's life after death. We saw that at Shane Warne's memorial service where all these people kept on saying that Warne was looking down on us from heaven and he's now a star in the sky and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, from what I can tell from the other things they said, he didn't seem to be a particularly avid churchgoer um, and yet they have a great confidence that he was a man who now was comfortably in the life after and I wonder if you have that confidence I trust most of us do and if you do it's because of Jesus isn't it it's because you've trusted in Jesus because you've trusted that he has taken your punishment upon himself so that when you stand before God having breathed your last breath he will welcome you in as friend <laughs> but I reckon there's a lot of people who think that there's life after death but have got no idea about it and in the end it's just wishful thinking they're, they've never tried to become friends with their creator and they're just sort of hedging the bet that when they get up to heaven God will say yeah no worries not sure who you are but come on in I think that requires greater faith than I have but you see, as this song that we've just heard the lyrics from show us, it's often when we go through hard things that it can lead us to think about eternity. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer and author, famously once said that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think he's right, isn't it?
But it's not always the case. Some people will be so hardened to God, so devout in their atheistic belief, that they, when they go through hard times, just push God out and don't think about eternity at all. But we who are attuned to spiritual things will experience suffering and think of the future. Think of our eternal future. Think about eternity. Well, in these final two chapters of the book of Daniel, uh, we are looking at a pretty overwhelming picture of future tragedy. Daniel has seen it all in its morbid detail and it is so confronting to him that it caused him to faint. Such was the horror of the vision. And yet, as we get to the later part of these two chapters, we will see that there is indeed room for hope. But we go through this seeing a whole lot about the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. We will see superpowers become super and then become powerless. And it's fairly consistent with what we've been seeing through all of Daniel, but it's in even more detail today. And now as we look back on the vision that was given to Daniel, we can actually see how it matches up with a whole lot of history from those centuries that Daniel was in and those that came afterwards. And I'll make some comments along the way about that. Well, it starts with chapter 11, verse 1. It says, I've been standing beside Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. And now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Uh, Daniel has seen this stuff last week and it has been sickening to his stomach. It's caused him to faint. The man who touched him on the shoulder and says, do not fear, now gives him more information about this book of truth that he talked about. The book of truth that because it listed all of these things that were happening in the future, it helps us to infer that God was in control even of evil. And now he was to reveal that truth to Daniel. And it starts here in verse 2b. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. So King Cyrus, who was the good guy who got God's people out of Babylon, brought them back to Jerusalem and gave them gold and silver to boot so that they could build their temple. He's there, he's the first guy. And then there's a bunch afterwards and then a king from Greece, verse 3, a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. And that matches up with Alexander the Great. And he was indeed great. He did some remarkable things, but he's not going to rule forever. Verse 4, at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Alexander the Great, uh, not so great after that, and the power of his kingdom is weaker. And because of that, verse 5, the king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, 
but she will lose her influence over him and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. And when he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. And for some years afterwards, he will leave the king of the north alone. Uh, we're going to hear a bit more of stuff like this. King of the north, king of the south. This is what Jan Daniel chapter 11 sounds like. Uh, the king of the south was the king of Egypt. The king of the north, he was up there in Syria and Babylon. Um, he was the ruler, Seleucus I. And the point of all this is the north and the south keep fighting. You're going to see a whole lot of the north and the south. The north is up here, Syria and all of that. The south down here, Egypt and all of that. And you'll notice right in the middle is Jerusalem. And so there's going to be a lot of stuff as they sort of see these fighting whiz past them on the north and the south and the north and the south. And they keep fighting, verse 9. Later the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy fortress. And then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies but his success will be short-lived can you see it's a whole lot of biff between the north and the south and the north and the south and they come together and they split apart and all those sorts of things happen uh, we're seeing a picture of what superpowers tend to do one of the things they love to do is they love to change maps uh, if you have a look at a map of europe from 2000 years ago it looks really different to today in fact you look at it from a thousand years ago different look at it a hundred years ago it's quite different. And in fact, even as we speak, the map is being changed around Ukraine and so on, at least. They're trying, some are. That is what these guys do. And it keeps going, verse 13. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. And at that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. God's people here in the middle... North, south, north, south. It's sort of looking a little bit like a game of tennis, you know. And then, well, it hits them. Verse B. Violent men among your own people of God will join them in fulfilment of this vision, but they will not succeed. Daniel's own people will now join the fighting and they will fail. God's own people will fail in the fighting. But the fighting's going to continue, verse 15. The king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south won't be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. North, south, north, north will stop in the middle at Israel. And what does he want to do? Well, this king of the north, Antiochus III, is intent on destroying the beautiful land, the glorious land of Israel. And this brings more heartache for God's people. Verse 17. 
he will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He'll take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. This king tries to capture as much land as he possibly can, but in the end, he stumbles. Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendour, but after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. The successor is Seleucus IV, and then after that comes his younger brother, the infamous Antiochus IV. We've already heard about him in the last few weeks. He is a very nasty piece of work, Antiochus IV, and we'll hear about him now. Verse 22, before him great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. What's that code for? That's code for a high priest of God's people who will be killed. See, this warring between north and south is really coming home to God's people now. You can see why Daniel, as he's looking at this vision of the future, doesn't know what these names are of these kings or all these details, but you can see why he is physically sick. But now we're going to find out a bit more about this infamous Antiochus IV. Let me read a few verses from verse 23. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land and then he will distribute amongst his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will, he will plot the overflow of strongholds, but this will only last for a short while. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm... These kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other. But it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. There's a whole lot more of this kind of stuff that we're looking in this chapter. You have a look at it a, bit, a little bit later on. That commentary by Andrew Reid is really terrific. It helps you sort of pinpoint, match different things up. But I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. But the key is at this point, Antiochus IV now enters Jerusalem to go in and visit God's people, the people of the Holy Covenant. And the results are devastating. Verse 28. The king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey. Antiochus IV causes much damage to God's people but there's more to come. Verse 29. Then at the appointed time, he will come... He will want, sorry, I'll say again. 
Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south, but this time the result will be different. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. What happens there? Antiochus IV is scared off by warships from western coastlines. In other words, here comes Rome. Rome enters the picture and he scares Antiochus IV. But Antiochus IV wants to focus in on God's people and this is what really turns the stomach of Daniel. For we read, verse 30, that he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and he will reward those who forsake the covenant. There's a whole lot of bad news here for the future of God's people and it must have been very bitter to Daniel because it's the third year since King Cyrus has brought them out of Babylon into Jerusalem. They're starting to rebuild the temple. There's that whole idea of coming home. We're back to Jerusalem. And Daniel gets this vision of just sadness and chaos and terror and horror for the centuries ahead for God's people. And this is what he sees now. Verse 31. Antiochus the fourth army will take over the temple fortress. He will pollute the sanctuary. He'll put a stop to the daily sacrifices. And he'll set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. We'll come to that in a moment. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. War comes now to the very heart of God's temple. It's not up there with the north and down there with the south, having a biff. It's actually come right in. It's penetrated the very heart of the building that symbolised the presence of God amongst his people. And he sets up this sacrilegious object that causes desecration. We've already heard this mentioned in the book of Daniel. And in fact, it's so infamous that even Jesus talks about it. And he connects his own death to this very event, in a sense, showing it's of the similar magnitude, although greater. In Matthew 24, he mentions that. But what was it, in fact, that Antiochus IV did to desecrate God's temple? Well, he goes into the very centre of God's temple and he sets up an altar. Not an altar to God, but an altar to Zeus, right there in the very heart of God's temple. And on that altar, he sacrifices some animals. Bulls? No. Lambs? No. Doves? No. What kind of animal do you think that he might sacrifice to really cause offence to the Jews? Have a guess. A pig. Pigs. There in the centre of the Jewish temple, the very presence of God on a temple in the temple on an altar to Zeus, they sacrifice pigs. And what does it do to God's people? Well, it hits them hard and it, they rise up. Verse 33, wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they'll be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive and many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. 
There's an awful lot of, of backstory to all of that. You can know that even in those brief words there, there is so much pain. The persecution is horrible. And no wonder, as Daniel heard about these events of the future, it made him faint. He lost consciousness because it was so horrible. But what happens as a result of the persecution? We're told that they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end. That reminds me of what you do to gold. Let's say you're digging up the backyard and you're putting in a veggie patch and you hit something hard and you think, oh, someone's buried their rubbish, the people before me, and you dig down a bit to clean it out and something's kind of a bit shiny and you pull it out and it's this big gold nugget. You think, oh, you little ripper. What do you do to refine it? Because it's full of dirt and all sorts of other stuff in the midst of it all. You throw it in the oven. Probably not your oven at home. Go and find someone who's better equipped to do this. But you melt it down. And in the midst of that great fire, all of the dross gets burnt up and all that's left is just pure gold. Which is lovely for you because you've got a much better bit of gold. Not so nice if the gold metal happened to have feelings. It wouldn't be enjoying that at that stage because it would be feeling the intense heat. That's kind of how the persecution is paralleled for God's people. It's a time of intense heat. And it's a time that brings, as it says here, refinement, cleansing and purity. We think of persecution and say we want it to stop. It's horrible. And it is horrible. And if you're in the midst of it, you don't want it to keep going, do you? But the Lord uses persecution in all sorts of remarkable ways. Have a look at the early church, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. That's the Apostle Paul. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. a horrible day but you know what happened one of the greatest days for the spread of the gospel all that area people who followed jesus were flung out to the different areas so that they could say well what are you doing here well i was in jerusalem well why are you here because i'm getting persecuted what for and many many people knew how to follow jesus and why it mattered because of persecution see we know that the lord uses persecution to bring about good But what is that good? You see, for us, we think what good is a lot like the way the world thinks about good. What is the prayer for most parents today for their children? I reckon the Aussie prayer is, I just want my kids to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. And what's the modern farewell? It's not God be with you till we see again. It's be safe. That's what we tell everybody now. Be safe. Hashtag be safe. But there's more to life than being happy on earth. There's more to life than being safe on earth. Because when you have an eternal perspective, when you look to eternity, you will do things that are not safe. You will do things that don't bring you happiness. They'll bring you joy, but not happiness. 
why else would you be a Christian in a place in this world where it is persecuted for doing so? Why would you have an app on your phone so you can read God's word only to risk it being told by an authority, show me your phone, and then they see the Bible app, and then, well, the rest is history. For when it comes to following Jesus, we will have pain. And for some, it will even bring death. But it is worth it, isn't it? Of course it is. For when it comes to a faithful life, it's better to die on our knees than live on our feet. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you ready to face persecution? So I think things are soon to get harder for us, not easier. Religious freedom is under increased attack and it's growing. Right now in Victoria, it is illegal for a minister to pray according to the teaching of the Bible with someone who is struggling with unwanted sexual desires, even if that person asks the minister for that prayer and consents to it. That is illegal in Victoria right now. In Australia. And next year, 2023, that legislation is coming to the New South Wales Parliament for debate. It's going to get harder and harder for Christians to be Christians. Are you ready? Part of my job here is to prepare you for persecution. I can't imagine that the pain we will experience here in Australia will be anything like what was described in Daniel's vision of the temple in Antiochus IV. But other parts of the world face that and worse. Christianity is full of histories where Christians have been abused and persecuted. We've had it easy in Australia. Maybe not much longer. Well, what will Antiochus IV do? Well, I'm just going to finish this chapter by reading it out to you, these ten verses. Have a listen. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or for the God loved by women or for any other God, for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Instead of these, he will worship the God of fortresses, a God his ancestors never knew, and lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign God's help, he will attack the strongest fortresses. He will honour those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. The king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers and a vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel and many nations will fall, but Moab, Edom and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver and treasures of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. 
But the news from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliviate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. There's a whole lot I could say about those, but I won't. You can do your own homework and see how it all matches up. But did you notice this? The king will claim to be greater than God. I want to suggest to you that's a bad idea. doesn't work out well in the end. And his kingdom will rise and it will fall. And we see in this, it won't continue forever. And there is our hope. And as the book of Daniel draws to a close, we start to see more of this hope. For now, as the new chapter comes alive, chapter 12, we see things from a heavenly perspective. At that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. There's going to be a great time of anguish and rescue will follow. There is pain and tragedy, but there is hope. And this is what it looks like. This is what Daniel heard at the end of the vision. Many of those, body, those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Where is the hope? The hope's in the resurrection. That's where the hope is. In rising from death to life, in seeing that life on earth is just a shadow of the things to come. And friends, this, this reminds us afresh of, of the hope of the empty tomb of Jesus. You see these words here from Daniel 12, they talk about resurrection. And in fact, they are probably the most developed ideas of resurrection in the whole Old Testament. But, but they're only in sort of black and white compared to the colour and the 3D of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that comes from those of us who trust in him. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We have hope. And it changes how we grieve. We have hope even as we see death. And in this vision, Daniel saw a lot of death. He, he probably didn't see the faces or the names, the individual suffering, but it was such a grand picture of, of horror and sadness for the future. It would have, that it completely overwhelmed him, as we saw. But now there was hope. Well, with this vision, Daniel had to keep it secret. Verse 4, 
But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. We can look back on the vision now and see it matching up to all of these details. But for Daniel, he couldn't let everybody know what was going to happen. He wasn't allowed to do that. God would not let that happen. For him, it was his future. For us, it is our past. And as he saw all this horror, his big question was, how long? How long is all this pain going to happen? How long will all this suffering happen? How long will all this persecution happen? Well, here's the answer. And with this, I'll read the final verses from the final chapter. Then I, Daniel, looked and I saw two others standing on opposite banks of the river. One of them asked the man dressed in linen who was now standing above the river, how long will it be until these shocking events are over? The man dressed in linen who was standing above the river raised both his hands towards heaven and took a solemn oath by the one who lives forever, saying, it will go on for a time, times, and half a time. When the shattering of the holy people has finally come to an end, all these things will have happened. I, Daniel, heard what he said, but I didn't understand what he meant, so I asked, how will all this finally end, my Lord? But he said, go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed and refined by these trials. But the wicked will continue in their wickedness and none of them will understand. Only those who are wise will know what it means. From the time that the daily sacrifice is stopped and the sacrilegious object that causes desecration is set up to be worshipped, there will be 1,290 days and blessed are those who wait and remain until the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. There's much I can do to unpack all of that but I'm not going to because we're out of time. But the key to all of this, I think, is what Daniel's told. How long? It will be after the shattering of the holy people has finally come to an end. It's after the end of much persecution and pain. After the greatest evil of all times, in fact. What do you think is the greatest evil of all time? It's got to be the death of Jesus, surely. It's got to be the day that the creator of the universe, out of love, came to save and humans executed him. There's no greater desecration than that. In fact, that's how Jesus spoke of it. In Matthew 24 that we looked at a little while ago, he talks of the desecration and then he says, Then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be deep Mourning among all the peoples of the earth. There is that day. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory as he did, as he rose. That day of deep mourning will bring the dawn of his great power and glory. That day we saw it at the cross. And the day that was confirmed at the tomb.
And now we await the coming of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to close by singing a song that, uh, when we learnt it, it was kind of an upbeat sort of sea chanty sort of feel called Almost Home.